we continue and we will complete, yes we will, the, the discussion of Holy Tradition tonight. Several handouts for you. One is an a, a article on prayer. We discussed our spiritual life last week. Others on the intercession of the saints. Uh, a list of the church fathers, the great church fathers, which I'm going to hold one of those. The veneration of the saints, how we understand that in the church. Thank you for handings, handings around. And an article on icons was from a newspaper years ago. From I guess from the Birmingham newspaper, or maybe it's from another. Some basics of practice in the Orthodox Church. We make the sign of the cross in the Orthodox faith as a regular and personal, personally motivated decision, both in our worship life and personal life. We make the sign of the cross anytime the Trinity is mentioned or glory is given to the God the Trinity. We make the sign of the cross, three fingers together, thumb and the first two fingers. The other two fingers close in on the palm. We make the sign of the cross. Head, tummy, right shoulder, left shoulder. Opposite of the way, um, in mirror image of the way the clergy bless you, but so it's consistent. You're blessed from right to left from your point of view. From me, it's left to right. And um, three fingers for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Other two fingers, it said, for the two natures of Christ, divine and human. And so that's how we make the sign of the cross. Parents can bless their children with the sign of the cross, as not the way the clergy do, but with in the same holding the hand the same way. Uh, clergy, priests, and bishops bless the people. I think I've talked, well, maybe we didn't talk about this with the fingers this way, as our Lord Himself on the icons is has it that way. The fingers represent, it's better if you have long fingers. The fingers represent <clears throat> ICXC. What could that mean? IC, so ICXC is the shape of my fingers in the ICXC, Jesus Christos, Jesus Christ. So the priest is blessing you with the blessing of Jesus Christ. And so that's, that's what that is. Now, sometimes we're not always real exact in holding our hands like in a church service and so forth, but it's, if you do it tightly, you can sort of almost see it. <clears throat> But it's not for you to really see it. It's just to know that it's not the blessing of Father Alex. It's the blessing of our Lord. That we are given the privilege of, of asking the Lord to bless you. And even if you say, Father bless, I'll say the Lord bless. Or the blessing of the Lord is what is typically said. We may run short on articles. I apologize. There's some here. We got more here. There's a set here. She has a library of them. <laughs> Back home. So, <clears throat> we make the sign of the cross leaving the house. We make the sign of the cross getting in the car. We make the sign, make the sign of the cross getting on the road. We make the sign of the cross getting on the highway. 
We make the sign of the cross before meals that can include a prayer or blessing of, of, of the meal, but um, sometimes we just simply make the sign of the cross. You can make the sign of the cross before you drink a glass of anything. Um, it's, there's a, a great, as like I said, freedom of, of, of partaking of that blessing, that movement of sealing oneself. In the early church, the sign of the cross was made on the forehead. So, any, so in times of persecution, as far as anyone could tell, you're scratching your head. The Greeks do tend to do three times quick and shorter, like that. The Russians do big, big, bigger the better, and and big, and often then with a big bow at the waist as well. In church, that is for for church worship. But so there's variations on that practice, but just as a practice, it's a belief that this the cross is is has the power of protecting us, blessing us. Um, that it's that it's its own prayer, it's its own prayer literally at hand, at any given time, and that there's a certain power. Even if we're under temptation, if you make the sign of the cross three times, you may find you even notice that you just kind of feel a little different, a little calmer, and so forth. So that's a tool that that um, Orthodox Christians have, both in worship and in their personal prayer. <laughs> Questions on that? Talking about the time you went to the rough ship and the old lady outside of church said you'd been blessed yourself, right? Do you remember that? To my wife, they told her. It was my oh, wife. They told it was, your wife? Yeah, Melanie. Yeah. Oh, that she didn't make it big enough. It wasn't big enough. <laughs> can't be too small. Uh, fathers and saints. Fathers, saints, as, as the next subject, all of the components of holy tradition. Uh, the faith lives in the lives and teachings of the saints well-pleasing unto God that the uh, writings of the fathers and lives of the saints, both men and women, are the most important source of ongoing teaching for Orthodox Christians. Some of the teachings of the fathers are too deep for the average Christian because they, they're monastically focused and meant for people at an advanced level of prayer and spiritual life in the, in the context of the monastery. But we there are writings that are more accessible than, than others that are not less. Orthodoxy speaks of the faith once for all delivered to the saints, quoting from uh, Jude, verse 3, the letter of Jude, that the faith is delivered and, and traditioned by the saints from generation to generation, That's, that saints produce saints. The, the product of the church, what does the church do? The church produces saints. That's the ideal, that the church in every generation would be uh, manufacturing saints, holy people, holy men and women, holy children. Be holy, for I, your God, am holy. We read both in the Old Testament and the New, Leviticus 11:44, and then repeated by St. Peter, 1 Peter 1:16. Be holy, for I, your God, am holy. That we're called, that's God's command to be holy that we're called to share in the holiness of God, in the life of God, that that holiness comes from above, comes from God. You can't produce your own holiness. Um, it's, to, it's, it's in communion with God, in union with God, that one becomes holy. And the saints, <clears throat> in the lives of the fathers, uh, lives of the saints and fathers bear witness to the authenticity, to the truth of the Christian gospel. The fact of a saint, the fact that there are holy people, 
is the sign or the proof that in communion, in contact with the true and living God uh, through Jesus Christ, that, that everything said about Christ proves itself out uh, in, in the, the fact of those whose lives are attached to Christ are transformed, transfigured, and become a witness to another life, to the, to the life of God. And uh, the, the fathers are, some, are sometimes called God-bearing. They're God-bearing, literally, literally carrying bearers of God, carrying the presence of God. Sometimes when you're in the presence of someone who's holy, it's not anything they say or teach. It's just there's a presence. There's a, there's a presence. Um, and it's the sense of it's it's the presence of, of the holy of of, the, of God's presence. The Orthodox teaching is the holiness is open to all Christians. It should be the goal for all Christians that all are called to be saints. Romans one seven, <clears throat> Romans one seven, all are called to be saints. And then again, um, you are fellow citizens with the saints. Ephesians. We'll read that. Ephesians two. 19. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit citizens with the saints. <coughs> Prayer, worship, keeping the commandments, <clears throat> not only the Old Testament commandments, but Christ's commandments. Christ has commandments when you pray in secret, right? When you pray, pray in secret. Go into your closet and pray in secret. Don't, don't pray to be seen by men. Those kind of things, the things from the, from the uh, Sermon on the Mount. We take those as, as commandments, guidelines of Christ. Being, striving to serve and please God in all things uh, and not, not pleasing men and being willing to suffer for not pleasing men is the witness of the saints. To choose uh, to serve life, to serve God, the church, the kingdom. Um, the saints chose God instead of, uh, to, to, instead of serving. The saints served the world indirectly but their goal wasn't just to serve the world. I mean, they served people. They served others. They were a, a, uh, a light to others, whether they were specific teachers personally, one-on-one, -on -one, or, or a guide of many, uh, or just by their writings to guide others and to, to give direction to others. But um, their, first, their first focus was God, to seek God, and then that would trickle down loving God and loving loving the neighbor. There are, <clears throat> we speak of the saints, there are categories, various categories, the fathers being but one category of the saints. So we'll just list those quickly. So, of course, the apostles were saints. The evangelists Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <coughs> the Church Fathers. 
when we speak of fathers, were those who specifically have writings, writings um, that come down to us uh, through the centuries, and and become often commentating on commenting on scripture, uh, reinforcing uh, the interpretation of scripture, and so forth. Prophets. I mean, as a title, those would be the Old Testament prophets, though Christian and New Testament saints have a prophetic voice, often in the church, to speak God's word. Confessors, those who suffer for the name of Christ, and then martyrs, those who suffer and die for the sake of Christ. Then there are the the holy ones, the monastic, and well, I'm running out of room. The monastics, which are sometimes known as the holy ones, the monastics, the ones whose life are set aside for the service of God, the righteous, the lay Christians, and lay saints, including the great figures of the Old Testament. Um, that are not prophets, they would fall into the category of righteous. Then finally, there's there's one other unique category to the Orthodox Church called the Fools for Christ. The Fools for Christ. What what is that? Um, Saint Paul says in one of his epistles, "We're fools for Christ's sake." Um, the the Fools for Christ were people who. Abandon all um, conventional life kind of dropouts. People who sort of dropped out of, of normal everyday living, even though they might be in the middle of a great city and live right in the heart of the city. They're, I guess, as, as akin to what we might call street people today in, in many cases. But um, they appeared to be, out of their minds, they appeared to be mentally unstable, but in fact they they often were sort of putting on an act of, of insanity, but in fact were had the, the wisdom uh, of, of, of God and um, people would, would begin to realize that the person, hey this person's not just uh, uh, troubled and unstable, but in fact they have something, a spark of, of, of prophetic life about them and so people come to understand them in a different way and have a reverence for them, which is, again, unique to uh, orthodoxy. Um, there was one example was um, the, uh, the um, Fool for Christ Basil, who, for whom this church is dedicated, this famous church in Red Square in Moscow is was um, Ivan the Terrible had that church commissioned in honor of Saint Basil the Fool for Christ, who was kind of like a court gesture, gest in gesture in uh, the life of Ivan the Terrible, who's who was terrible, who was a psychotic uh, ruler uh, in in Russia in the 1500s. And Basil was kind of like the only one that could say things to him. 
to uh, call him call him to some kind of level of conscience. I think it was Basil. There was another one, Nicholas, too, and I get them confused. There's another, but for instance, right. for instance, um, uh, Ivan would would do things like get his guys together, and they're going to go out and 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 attack some village and literally, literally rape and pillage and carry on um, somewhere. And Basil heard about it and 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 headed him off. And um, comes run the, the the horses are coming in town he runs up to him with a piece of raw meat basil's holding it out to 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 ivan he says here ivan eat eat and and this is the here's showing the psychotic mind of 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 this guy it was a fast it was lent he says i don't eat meat during lent he's about to go kill people but he's <laughs> <laughs> and, and and and, he, and that's what and basil says yes but you but you eat you you eat the flesh of your own people, and and he, so he actually got to his con somewhere, got and he turned back and went went back home, that kind of thing. He also sat on the cathedral steps, on on holy on Good Friday and ate meat, and called and called all the nobility hypocrites as they came to church, you know. <laughs> so they would do things to shock sometimes to 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 kind of challenge people. At a depth and a level of, of uh, to, um, and they could get away with it, and sometimes they wouldn't get. I mean, they would take, they would sometimes take beatings and take abuse and ridicule and so forth, and as a sign of humility, they they it took took that on to themselves, even invited it, and it's not recommended um, calling. <laughs> it is a very specific, unique, rare. Uh, calling for one to you don't just try like I'm going to grow up I want to grow want to grow up and be a fool for Christ <laughs> you know I mean if I can just stop being a fool that would be a start but um but yes you don't it's a unique special thing but anyway but because the other categories are are kind of obvious as to what they are so historicity the historic fact orthodoxy is not hung up on uh, measuring historical accuracy of all the uh, miracles and uh, the exploits of the saints, we don't doubt the miracles. Um, but for instance, um, uh, in the Roman Church in the 1970s, it was they sort of demoted Saint <coughs> George, Saint Nicholas, and Saint Christopher because there wasn't enough historical information about their lives. Orthodoxy that's incomprehensible from, from the orthodox point of view and in fact probably the major there's probably more churches in the orthodox church named after saint nicholas and saint george than probably any almost any other saint throughout the world saint george is very strong popular in the holy land the middle east and uh saint nicholas in both greece and russia and so forth and saint george in greece as well and saint george is the patron protector of russia according to the uh, old the old teaching so so these are uh, or we don't care about how much historical information I mean Saint Nicholas was at the at the, for, the first ecumenical council um, Saint Christopher was a beloved patron saint of travelers in the in the Roman Church he's an Orthodox saint as well um, so it was like a shock to the piety of of people when they you know came up with this kind of demotion. 
but we, t we even teach the pious legends can teach us as well as the lives and we choose to believe it's an elevated rationality we choose to believe that that the God who made all of this can certainly do any manner of miracles through through the through the mediation and intercession and uh, action of the saints well pleasing unto him the saints invariably are people who God is pleased with whom God has gone into a depth of, of relationship and communion with that um, and there so and it is possible to please God with one's behavior and of course to displease God as well but um, their closeness to God is what um, is, is, is what we is what we revere and honor in them now of course it's the old rub well I don't need I don't need saints I can just go direct to Jesus and um, it's not an either or for, for orthodoxy it's like an end and both we and and it's not that we go to a saint instead of God we go to a saint and ask their prayers the prayer to a saint is Saint John pray for me Saint Nicholas pray to God for us the prayer is to ask their prayers with the belief that they're close to God and that spiritually now they're close to the throne of God the article will talk about that in the intercession article and um, as someone said if you can you can you can challenge this this uh, uh, bias with some people in the in in that mindset to say well would you like Billy Graham to pray for you oh well yes why, why would you want well he's Billy Graham we'd like St. John Chrysostom to pray for us because he's St. John Chrysostom and so forth that that it's about revering honoring the the, the ones who are close to the Lord yes so it's absolutely a, a wrong-headed view to take to, to, to believe that when we pray for the saints that we're like asking we're having to go through like a, a secretary to God or, or something like that so they're not God's secretaries they're God's friends they are the friends of God, and, and to make friends of the friends of God is a good thing. It is very much a part of the life of an Orthodox Christian to make friends with the friends of God. And we ask their intercession, just as we might say, I'm go, hey, I'm going to the hospital next week, please pray for me. We ask others to pray for us as a matter of second nature, of, of course. And so our connection with the Heavenly Church is open. We, we believe in an openness and an open flow of communication between the invisible heavenly church and the, and the earthly visible church. And um, we, we, we are totally comfortable having a uh, frequent re recourse to ask the saints to pray for us. And that's what it means to be fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And it's something as as you go deeper into the life of the church that you, you kind of develop in the same way you develop a relationship with the Virgin Mary, Theotokos, Mother of God that that kind of grows as over time and um, as, as and, and kind of finds its deeper meaning in, in, in the life of the church as you go deeper The, pro the fathers are the primary teachers of the faith after the apostles. 
the apostles, the 12, and then the 70, as we said last week. Not all the saints wrote. In fact, only few of the apostles wrote anything. Uh, from many of the apostles, we don't, we don't, there's no writings and, and hardly a word from them, but they're apostles. <coughs> the fathers are those who specifically left writings, some very extensive. The great fathers of the fourth century, and there's a chart here, a chronology of the Holy Fathers, St. John Chrysostom, St. Basil, St. Gregory the Theologian, that the fathers taught the truth and they refuted heresy. They taught the truth and they rejected rejected heresy. What is heresy? <clears throat> Keep coming back to here. I know you can see this side better. Heresy is a Greek word that simply means choice. In, in, the, in the fact of, in, in terms of doctrine, a heretic is one who chooses to believe what he wants according to his own human ideas and opinions, uh, selecting and rejecting from the tradition. One who, and then one who, by his, by his own teachings, by his heresies, uh, causes division, causes strife, in church life, uh, someone so a heretic, someone who's a heretic, who's who's t who's preaching heresy, a heretic is someone specifically challenging the the church's received faith. Uh, it's not simply not simply one who's mistaken or, or ignorant or misguided, um, uh, but but in fact consciously aware that they're opposing what the church has taught. Um, so there's people who indeed are mistaken or ignorant or misguided about what, about what orthodoxy believes, so we would not consider them uh, heretics per se. We do speak of their being heterodox, which, different from orthodox, hetero means different, right? Something, <coughs> people who believe something other than what the church teaches. Um, but are not not actively uh, countering or, or or challenging the church, and these are people that often think they have the truth and that the, or that truth doesn't matter. But again, a, a heretic is one who's actively aware that he's challenging the faith, and therefore, by nate by definition, it's sinful. It's a it's a sinful act. Um, it's not just gee, I have some interesting thoughts and teachings, but. Um, Plenty of, of of people, church leaders, scholars in the West, who have looked at orthodoxy, looked at what orthodoxy teaches, may consider themselves orthodox with a small o, um, but w will not will not accept what the church or w w do not believe it's important enough to become orthodox, you know themselves, and that's a gray area because. They're not accusing orthodoxy of heresy per se, but they they're they're comfortable being in their own confession where they are, and people some have an attitude of well I'll work within my confession to bring 
us Christians closer and so forth and so it's um it's a matter of conscience but I guess the point is we don't want we don't go um, some Orthodox like to throw the word heretic around and, her, and heresy and, and, and throw and use it as a as a weapon and that's that's not really helpful and it's not edifying and it's not it's not why God God doesn't make bring you to Orthodoxy so you can fire heretic you know the, the word her, heresy at others yes would the Coptics be considered heretics in basis of the teaching of their rejection of 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 the councils Church Council of Chalcedon yes. We, we consider the fact that they don't accept that count. But now, again, some some would say, well, it's just a big misunderstanding and let's not use the word heresy. Um, and, and the leaders of the Coptic Church are known as, are, are rejected by the church as heretics back in the day. So it's, it's, a, it's the couple of the leaders of that, that led to the split in the fourth century, fifth century, are considered heretics by what officially by the Orthodox Church, condemned by church councils. Dionysius, Severus, that we know them by name, there's a couple of them. The For them, the headless one, yes. Severus the headless one. <laughs> it's not because he lost his head, I think it was like you, you just because he they decided he was out of his mind. But um, but uh, so there's there's polemics there's polemics you know there's arguing and um, it's probably not the time for that yes I say that a lot of people I know that recently there's been a couple of statements issued by the Coptic Orthodox Christians who basically conclude that the, a lot of it was just geo, geopolitics and things of that council during the council of Chalcedon that's why they were written off but I. I have to object to that simply on the basis that even a century after the Council of Chalcedon, you had Emperor Justinian the Great calling the Fifth Council, which was an attempt to call the uh, the, the Coptic, what became the Coptic Christians, back into the Church, and largely didn't meet with a whole lot of success. Yes. Um, and then later you had uh, Emperor Heraclius in the uh, calling the Sixth Council, which was you know it was a different heresy, but it was along the same lines of the Monophysite heresy. Was just they were trying to synthesize getting it. So not only did we have one council, we had in fact really three councils trying to fight off the the monophysite heresy. Just so to say that it was geopolitics and that the church fathers just didn't understand what was going on, what was being said. I think is is, is greatly mistaken. Yeah, no, I mean there were there were attempts to 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 heal the division, and uh, those attempts were were pushed away, but. It, it, but it is, it is. There was politics involved. There's no question. But um, in any event, uh, it's a it's a it's a sad. It's considered a tragedy. Sadness of of the division that's there because they're they're very, obviously very ancient uh, faith and ancient witness and and have their own martyrs in our modern times. And so um, it's it's one of those thorny questions. So as my notes say here. Someone teaching what he believes to be truth without challenge or opposition as to the errors is not considered a heretic in the true sense. Someone teaching what he or she believes to be truth without a challenge or opposition as to the errors is not considered a heretic in the true sense. So many people that are preaching and teaching a version of Christianity that's not orthodox 
but as far as they know that they they're teaching the gospel, we don't consider them heretics just off the top. It's there's there's a lot of ignorance, and God has a lot of ignorance to deal with in all of us. There are Orthodox who are ignorant of their faith, who don't know what the church believes. They're just there because they've always been there, and so forth. Um, and may themselves hold teachings that are that are in conflict with the church, and they're not aware of it. So um, we just have to be careful about labeling. We affirm what what we believe Orthodox right believing Christianity is, but we're we're slow to condemn others for not knowing or understanding because their knowledge, their not knowing, is 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 in large part to our failure to to present our message and to have a witness and to be a faithful witness. The Father's writings and the lives of the saints are not infallible, um, but they never challenge the church with their mistakes. And we canonize, we canonize, we say this is official, this person's life or this person's writings are faithful um, expression of the orthodox uh, teaching um, we canonize that which is accepted as tradition as consistent with the teachings of the orthodox Christian faith um, but we don't assume that everything they said is exactly true and right um, they're human beings some fathers were specifically very doctrinally oriented in terms of uh, the doctrines others more mystical ascetical writings and teachings about they taught the way of, of, of prayer, of spiritual communion with God. Uh, others, fathers, taught more theological, pastoral uh, teachings and so forth. Um, but it's always from their own living Christian ex knowledge and experience that they weren't merely academics. They didn't just write interesting ideas they came up with. But they, they theologized from their life of prayer and worship and their, and their life in the church that they combined the Father's combined brilliance of intellect and purity of soul and holiness. When we speak of the Father's, we speak of the, you'll see the word patristic, the patristic teaching, and that that is the inheritance of the Father's teaching, just another word for Father's. Um, this patristic teaching as as believing it's, it's uh, uh, our nurture for a Christian soul, um, just like Holy Scripture and liturgy and so forth, that the Scripture is the first source of teaching the Father, and the Fathers and their writings are above all biblical. There's constantly uh, chock full of quotes of Scripture in their writings, so they're they're never just writing from their own ideas. They're always reinforcing their teaching with biblical references and uh, scriptural quotes. They wrote from the scriptures. They're steeped in scripture without exception. And we would say the Protestants' loss is that they don't have the fathers, that, that it's, a, it's, a, it's an impoverishment uh, spiritually to not have the fathers to look to, to, to fill out, in a sense, what, what it is to live the Christian life uh, and, and to help us with the interpretation of scripture and so forth. Again, the fathers and all the saints are products of the church. 
they they reveal what happens when you immerse yourself in the truth. And as we said, to to draw near to the saints is to make friends with the friends of God. In the book of Revelation, we see a witness of the saints. Uh, St. John uh, saw seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. This is Revelation 8, 2. And another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. So that's for us a proof and a sign of what goes on in heaven and that the saints are there praying. Of course, the saints are praying. They're not praying about helping things to be better in heaven. They're praying for the those on earth. Their intercessions have to do with what's down here. That the the problem area is here, not there. So their their prayers are are intercessory for for us. They pray to God for us. And again, to turn to the saints is not a substitute for prayer to God. But we say it enriches it enriches prayer, and the church is both a heavenly and earthly reality. So the communion of the saints is, is very much a, a part of, of the living Orthodox life. Not just the communion of the saints on this level, but with those that we just t- talked about in Revelation. Wrapping up holy tradition, canon law and church art. What is canon law? What are canons? Come back over here. Greek word canon, canon. Means a rule or standard. speak of the canonical scriptures the canonical scriptures that which is canonical that which is according to the the norms the standards the first compilation of of in in, we, in known uh, writing of the New Testament books of the Bible was not until the year 395 it was not until the year 395 that we can see a list of what would compose the books of the New Testament. Not that they weren't around and in the mind of the church beforehand, but it's really not until that late that we have the list of the canonical books of that which is considered scripture, the rule. The canon and canon law as well has to do with uh, norms of behavior behavior in the in the life of the church. More. Would canon be synonymous with holy tradition? Say it again? Would canon be uh, 
synonymous with holy tradition, what we have received, is what the fathers always in, taught, so in, therefore we write it down. In terms of canonical, yes, the word canonical. Yeah, it's the norm, the standard measure. Um, there's a there's a book of canon law, um, which has come to be known called the Rudder, that uh, lists all different canons, um, and so typical Protestant complaint as well about orthodoxy is is or about. Catholic Church, Orthodox Church, is that, well, Christianity started out to be life in the spirit, but then we got all these rules, we got all these canons, this canon law, what is that? You know, it's losing the spirit, going, going back to the legalism, going back to the law. We would argue that um, there has always been, there have always been canons, there always been a canonical vision, guidelines of church life that, uh, yes, Christian life is life in the spirit, but there are there are still legal guidelines, especially in matters of sexuality. There simply are rules. There are do's and don'ts. There are yeses and nos. It's not simply that. Well, I'm in the spirit and I'm feeling whatever I'm feeling. <laughs> sometimes the answer is just no. <laughs> And uh, we look to, here's for example, 1 Timothy 3. First letter of St. Paul to Timothy, chapter 3, about the uh, standards for the for a life, life of a bishop. This is a true saying. If a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to, te to teach, capable to teach, apt. APT. Uh, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, that's money, but not, not uh, greedy, period. Uh, but patient, not a brawler, which is good. You don't want your bishop to be like out brawling all the time. Um, <clears throat> not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. If a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. He have a, should have a good reputation in the society, good report uh, with those who are without, of them which are without. So, we would say, this is, that's canon law. In the Bible, in the scripture, those are guidelines, norms, standards of behavior, what's expected of a bishop. It doesn't, matter, doesn't mean he isn't called to be a spiritual man, but there are certain qualities, expectations, husband of one wife. Now, in the earliest times of the church, in the context of which this is written, each community had its own bishop. The pastor of every community was a bishop. Later on, as the church expanded, the bishop, the bishop became an, an episkopos. Is a Greek word for bishop means overseer. That the bishop became. I'm walking this off. The bishop became. Um, I can see everybody's um, The bishop became a, a, a managerial sort of overseer figure of many communities, and the presbyters, the priests, would then uh, be his sort of fill-in substitutes, vicars. 
uh, as they're called and still in the Church of England, but would 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 be his assistants. So the bishop would be. But uh, at this time, and then the bishops, and the, then also when that church developed that way, the bishops came to be from the celibate clergy, uh, not the husband of one wife, because their requirements of their office more or less mean that they were married to their diocese, married to their region, to their churches. And the presbyters, the priests, would be the local pastor who would be locked into the local community and would be married. Um, so that was a development of church life. But again, these are rules, guidelines for, for, the, uh, for, for in, in the canonical tradition. There's also, in the, as part of the, of, of the, of the uh, matin service, the morning service, there's a a uh, um, it's a litur- what do you call a liturgical, poetical um, portion of matins called the canon, the canon of matins. It has eight odes, and the odes each have a biblical theme. <clears throat> so there's eight hymns, and there's other uh, hymns and 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 uh, verses that you read or sing with that. So it's a regular part of matins called the canon. That's not what we're talking about actually here. Again, we're talking about canonists, canon law, canon, and this rudder thing has all kinds of laws as to what you do when um, the moral moral problems of the clergy, moral problems of the faithful, penances directed for those moral uh, failures and um, and, uh, and infractions. Uh, So when you read that stuff, it's like, well, gee, if there's a law, it must have happened. Uh, somewhere, <laughs> and there's some pretty interesting things <clears throat> over church history over time. But for instance, can, for instance, the the, the penance, uh, fornication, one year, no of 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 restriction from communion, adultery, three years, uh, no a restriction from communion. Similar uh, similar for abortion. Um, now, these canons are still mediated by the local clergy. And the local priest decides whether to enforce the full canonical measure that's given. You're not you're not absolutely required to have to for it to be all of that. If someone comes in repentance and and sincerely repenting, then you you look at all that pastorally. Um, if a person's in a, a relationship where there's fornication and they in, they stay in it and they're not repenting and they insist on doing it, then they've excommunicated themselves. It's not really it's not really that you're excommunicating anyone. You're they've they've done it to themselves and you're protecting them from taking communion to their condemnation that they would be in an illicit relationship and then still trying to come to the chalice. It's it's like for their safety and protection. No. You, you have to get your life in order before you are able to return to communion. So these are things that are dealt with um, in, in, the, in the life of the church and the pastoral uh, challenges of, uh, of everyday uh, spiritual life. One of, the, one, of the specific, one of the canons that's important is the canon of diocesan sovereignty, that each bishop is the ruler of his own region, of his own diocese, and one bishop may not come into the diocese of another bishop without an invitation, without a, a, a written, written invitation, so that bishops can't just move around and interfere in each other's territory. They, the canons specify that they, they, they have to uh, 
agree to invite another bishop into one's territory. In the transfer of priests, a priest can't simply pick up and say, I think I'd like to live in Chicago, and so I'm going to move to Chicago next week. No. Um, For him to continue to function as a priest, he has to have, in the transfer, a, a letter of release from his current bishop and a letter of acceptance from the bishop of the diocese where he intends to go. Now, typically, it doesn't happen that way. The priest says, hey, I want to move. It's more like there's an opening of a church in Chicago, and so the priest hears about it. He says, I think I'd like to take that church there, that assignment, So, but you have to go through the proper channels, get a blessing, the blessing to, to depart, the blessing to be received, and all of that has to be worked out. Most of our priests are married with families, and so it doesn't, and nothing just happens just, just kind of abruptly. Um, there was one priest, though, years ago, I, he's still around, that his wife had a really good job in corporations. She was always being transferred around, so he would just kind of pop along wherever she went. So he never really was a pastor anywhere. He just sort of, wherever her job landed her, he landed with her, but that's that's exceptional. That's unusual. But um, so, so each of that, again, priests are not free agents. They can't just go around and... and See, I you know I, I want to <clears throat> I'll go to Charleston and I'll do some priestly stuff there because I feel like um, no I have to there has to be there has to be proper order and so um, and that's the same thing if a, a clergyman's traveling say you're traveling overseas and you want to visit uh, you want to be re- recognized canonically by the pre- say the Church of Greece or the Church of Russia or Ukraine or whatever that you would have a letter of introduction saying. That you're legitimate, you're a, you know, with the stationary. That you're, you're a, a priest of of the Orthodox Church in America and canonical, and you're not just some fly by night and so forth. So, uh, again, all of that, it's to keep order. There's, there's, uh, Saint Paul said, let everything be done in good order. So, canon law is not for us to see as stifling, or in some ways suppressing the spirit, but in fact simply giving good order to the life of the church and keeping, because chaos, spiritual chaos, priests that go crazy, bishops that go crazy, it hurts the people, it hurts the faithful. Everybody suffers when when things go awry and things go strange. Um, before me here, for instance, both priests left in the middle of the night and, and left the Orthodox Church, like to, all together. Um, it happened within a three-year period. One, one left, another came, and he left. And the faithful suffered. And when I got here, they'd been suffering for eight months without a priest. And so, I don't know if I felt sorry for them or they felt sorry for me, but anyway. <laughs> they said, Father, you were, you were fully qualified. You were, you were uh, upright and breathing, and you know. <laughs> you had a pulse, you know. You had a, No. Or is it no. Let your spiritual father no. Take care about yeah. I don't think it's a good idea. <laughs> and it's not. Oh, we can't. It's just not. I mean, it's it's a very heavy kind of thing too. It's but. Um, I don't read it myself. I I have looked at it a little bit. I mean, but again, some of the can some of the canons as I was referring to those are the critical ones that are kind of always 
in op so in operation as a part of the operational life of the church the moral ones a lot of it are just sort of artifact a lot, I mean and a lot of it is you know uh, somebody paying money to become a bishop and so it's called simony when it's found out you know he gets dumped he gets deposed is defrocked and so forth and some of the moral failings of the clergy the, the penance is defrocking you you're not thrown out of the church but you're no longer going to function as a priest um even in, and in the modern context, for instance, if a priest divorces his wife, priest is, is defrocked, is laicized. That's standard, normal. You know, if on the other hand, if a priest's wife leaves him, divorces him, he may continue to be as and function as a priest um, by his own decision. Um, so, and I've known priests that continued to do that. But they um, didn't marry again. They can't marry again. They can't remarry. Part of the part of the, the again the, the order of church life is you don't want a single priest who's looking for a wife in the congregation, which you do have that outside of orthodoxy in Protestant circles, so that priest as father and father looking for a, it's all it's not stable if if the priest is a single man who's allowed to marry. So before your ordination, you have to be committed to you have to be either committed to married life or single life, and and have been married uh, before you ordained, so that your personal life is settled. You're not looking for a bride in the congregation. You're you're a married person. You're committed to marriage, and canonically speaking, it's first marriage for the man who's to be a candidate for priesthood, and and his his wife is to not be previously married. So that 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 also is so so that the priest's life is a model um, of stability in that sense, and there's no you know there's no ex-husbands in the background or ex-wives, and all of that. It's this is the model, and it's hard sometimes. Not all, and in modern context, there there clergy and divorce is not uncommon, um, and however it unfolds. And it's sometimes a challenging life for the priest's wife, and she has to have a calling too. And we call the priest's wives; we give them a title. In the Greek, the the priest is presbyter, the the wife is presbytera. She's the female version. Uh, in the Russian, the priest is father, batushka. The the the, 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 the priest's wife is matushka, mother, her little mother, like she's a mother of the congregation. And in Arab, it's the Am priest. The priest is kori. You're a, you're a grand matushka. <laughs> and you have a staff, don't you? Somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the Arabic is uh, the priest is Kuri and the and the priest's wife is Kuriya, the priest and priestess, so to speak. Uh, even though she's not a priestess per se, but it's it's a title of honor given to the to the priest's wife. So um, that's a lot of stuff there. Questions on that? Yes. Does the canon law um, dictate what we do for music too? Well, there's 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 an eight melody tonal system that's that's standard for church life everywhere. So you could say that's sort of canonical, but it's not it's not spelled out necessarily. That I mean, the a lot of what's wor the worship books are were done separate from the can can canonical books. Their guidelines for worship are separate. It's kind of that was worship was a separate category of oh, okay. tradition. Yeah. Canon law is its own separate thing. 
has more to do, again, with behavior. Behavior and clergy behavior and, and so forth. And, yeah. You don't focus. Yeah, don't like that. Don't, don't, yeah, just, <laughs> now, if that's a can of law, then you would know somebody tried it. <laughs> no guitars. No polka, no guitars. No. Uh, ch- not, not, la- not hardly uh, last, but not, but not least, is uh, church art. The church art, it's artistic tradition. That, that it's artistic expression, um, which includes the icons, architecture, how buildings are built, uh, church music. Embroidery, um, that there, there. This is within the tradition. There are traditional ways of doing these things. There's been evolution, development over slowly over time, um, but the church art is the faith expressed visually that incorporates the all the senses, of vision and 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 hearing and so forth. Again, all the elements of holy tradition come alive in the lived life of the church, and when they're taken out of context. Uh, they are misused. We've already talked about that. Icons used as art objects and so forth. Um, that the I- icons are to be venerated. They teach the truth. They are the gospel in lines and colors. They're not. They're, they do add beauty to our church life and our personal spiritual life, but they're not decorations. Uh, they're not meant to be simply decorations. And again, the scripture lives in the life of the church. Um, I have a couple of quotes which I think you have on the back of one of your handouts. Maybe not. Maybe, I don't know. You have that veneration of icons on the back of one? On the back of Windows in Heaven. Windows in Heaven, yes, the Windows in Heaven article. <laughs> so there's two quotes on, on the importance of the veneration of icons. One speaks to the incarnation. The other speaks to the way we think. St. John of Damascus, writing in the uh, 7th century, or 8th century. Uh, In former times, God, who was without form or body, could never be depicted. But now, when God is seen in the flesh, conversing with men, our Lord Jesus Christ, I make an image, I make an icon of the God whom I see. I do not worship matter. I worship the creator of matter, who became matter for my sake, who willed to take his abode in matter, who worked out my salvation through matter. Never will I cease honoring the matter which wrought my salvation. I honor it, but not as God. How could God be born out of things which have no existence in themselves? So the, 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 the connection of the incarnation that God, in, in Jesus Christ, God became human, God became man, God took flesh. We can show his picture in the icons. Um, the other point made is... Uh, that we think in, we think in icons. St. John, John is talking. We think in images. Since we are not fashion, since we are fashioned of both soul and body, and our souls are not naked spirits, but are covered, as it were, with a fleshly veil, it is impossible for us to think without using physical images. And that's true. If we think of someone, we picture what their face. Um, just as we physically listen to perceptible words in order to understand spiritual things. So also by using bodily sight, we reach spiritual contemplation. For this reason, Christ assumed both soul and body, since man is fashioned from both. Yes? When did St. John of Damascus live? Seven, in the 8th century, 700s? Pretty sure. Maybe the, maybe the 600s. It was the 7th. 7th. 7th council. 600s? 
around the seventh council. Yeah, you're right. Because he dealt with, with Islam, Islam as well. That was right. He, Islam was coming in 600, so he, yeah, he's contemporary. That, that passage right there specifically addressing the Muslim accusations of idolatry towards the icons. Yes, yes, definitely. <clears throat> and the attack, and, and the belief is that the, the emperors who were iconoclasts, who were... Uh, by by decree removing the icons from the churches um, icon smashers are literally that kind of class the, the belief is that they were trying to sort of political play political footsie with the Muslims to try to say hey see you know we have no images in our places of worship either but the, the, the where there always were images in the churches and it was again um, I guess by anticipation they saw Islam coming up very warlike out of the east and wanted to try to make some some political rapprochement, some political deal, connection but using the church, using the faith as the vehicle for that which is they were those emperors were condemned and are rejected by the faith um, two Leos in fact <laughs> not, not, not I mean, their names were Leo <laughs> Pisces. <laughs> yes. Um, relatedly, I was curious about the um, the understanding of how the Holy Trinity is depicted in, in, in icons. Because I, I think I saw an icon of sort of three figures seated around a table or something like that. Um, uh, but I think it was it, it was clearly not meant to be like you know. A, maybe, I don't know how to articulate it well, like a physical depiction in the sense of this is what the Spirit looks like, this is what the Father looks like, because of course, you know, there's not the physical aspect, but uh, do you, you see what I'm saying? You know, is, is there such a room and... Um, there's a special icon, which I I have a big one at home, which I always, always forget to bring. Maybe I'll remember next time, but it's a depiction, actually, of what's called the hospitality of, of Abraham, in Genesis 18 where three angels come and visit Abraham and uh, a Russian iconographer Andrei Rublev famous uh, iconographer in the 1200s in Russia uh, painted that icon of the three angels visitation with three angels around a table as a type, a pointer to the Trinity and uh, the, symb the symbolism of how the three angels, um, two of them look to the one so that the one is the Father and the others represent the Son and the Spirit, that it's an implication that that visitation was a preview, a, pre a, fore a fore foretelling, uh, foreshadowing of the Trinity. And so the icon hints at it and points it to without saying this is, a, this is the Trinity or whatever. Now, there, there, are, there are corrupt... Wrong iconography, which, which the old man and, and the son and the dove um, that you see, in, which, it was in, a, the, in the 19th and 20th century, there was a corruption, which exactly went against what the church teaches about not showing God the Father. Now they would say, well, he's the Ancient of Days from the book of Daniel, and that's why you, but it's still, it's still not helpful when... Because we say you don't show you don't show God the Father, and then you see then there's hey then people Father look there's who's the old man in the, uh, 
<laughs> so on that point, there's, there's always, yes. How does someone become an iconographer? Do they have to, is there some like official designation? You can make icons now. Well, somebody has to have an, obviously an interest and a and a, um, a a gift, a talent, and then that that typically is nurtured under under a like apprenticeship, master apprentice kind of thing, ideally, where the tradition is handed down. I mean, I mean, a, a gifted artist can can kind of pick it up and do it. Um, I have a I have an icon like that that was done by a local artist. Who was who was a <coughs> convert to orthodoxy, and he just dabbled and did a, a, a this big icon panel and gave it to the church, and it's it's sort of correct, but it's lacking something be, because he was a very gifted artist, but he still never really studied in the under someone, and it it should involve fasting and spiritual self awareness that it's a really an ascetical effort. It's commonly uh, a monastic vocation I mean that I mean over over times over history probably more most iconographers have been monastic monks and nuns but that's not exclusively the case but that's it's pro so that they learn under an established monastic uh, guide and they're in a community together so they can really give time to it it's it's been, but it but it, it it there are lay iconographers the the iconographers that are doing our church ongoing are a married couple so he studied he's a, he's a gifted artist he can do great like portraits like he could paint you and it would look just that's you like like almost like a photo it's amazing so he's a very gifted but he's also gifted in the Byzantine tradition of iconography and self and I don't think self taught but he. He had he had guidance, he had direction, but he's very capable. So I think it's still you have to be an artist. I don't I mean people who aren't artistic and but are prayerful I think can do it, but it, it still doesn't hurt to be able to have a certain talent of hand. But there's no like official sanction from like a bishop that says, Okay, you can make icons and they're gonna be in safe in, in some church life I think there is. I think I yes, I think like he said in Romania he he has he's sort of licensed by the church, you know, so that he's a known iconographer. So that yes, he he. But in America, we don't so much have that. There are there are people doing iconography. There's there's non-orthodox people doing iconography. Um, so it it it's a little more free form. But that doesn't. There's some. But there's some good. There's some very good American iconographers too. So. But an icon should be blessed afterwards, right? Yes, generally. Though some people say it's blessed in the making of it itself, but we, we tend to... Most of modern iconography and modern church life are photo prints of originals. So there's a mass reproduction of the originals. So most of what passes for icons are photocopies. I mean, they're exact, you know, photo, but and placed on wood, mounted on wood, and so we tend to bless those. We put them, there's a stand behind the altar where they rest against the altar for a period of time, and, and they're blessed in that manner, and they're blessed with holy water as well. And that's that's a new thing. That's You could say that's a modern kind of thing, the mass reproduction of, of icon prints, because there's because they're so limited um, uh, 
iconographer. Uh, it's still a. It's still a. There's a relatively limited uh, body of painters. We have one in our midst. Georgia's developing, working on her iconographic ability, and she works with iconographers when they're here. And um, so, so she's in. She's in good hands with them because. And they're coming in January, our iconographers. So we'll we'll have scaffolding up again in church in January. But it's 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 good growing pains. Can I ask you a question? Yes. Uh, you mentioned that today mostly they're photocopies. Does that mean in the past that having personal icons at home was less prevalent, or yes. do people still have those? Is that relatively new that people would have these at home? Yes. No, they would have them at home, but they'd be they would have to have been hand painted. Before, before, really before the, before this past, before the 20th century. Um, so people might have one or two icons in the home, and they were painted by someone. But in, when well now we're talking over in Europe, in the Middle East, and so there were iconographers more prevalent. So hand painted icons were something you could get and you could were relatively affordable, you know. Man, I mean, but even today, today, you might get a a, a, a hand painted icon, relative, you know, whatever twelve by eighteen might cost four hundred dollars to for the artist to do that, and it depends, and people charge differently. But um, it's it's an ex it might have been for them sim a similar expense in relative terms of their. They might have to save up money over time to buy a hand-painted icon, but it, it was probably more like $100 for an icon than 400 you know. And But then they were really poor, so that still could be two months of, of, of salary or whatever. So, again, they always were dear. They always were something valuable, but they're much more common in old old-world Greece and old-world Russia and so forth. And then, the, and the quality of those icons vary too. You know, someone else have a hand up. No, you answered my question. Good. Yes. So, what is going back to uh, canon laws? What does a canon law have to like go through to be revised or like changed, like revisionedly? We don't really do that. <laughs> people are calling for it. If there's a big like, some people have called for, hey, we need to clean this up. There's rep there's there's redundancies and repetition and we need to redo our canon law, but which the Roman Catholic Church has done in in my lifetime. There's been a total cleaning out, editing, reorienting, which that's typically Catholic that they get after it and do it and, so and But we we've kind of just now we just let it all sit in the one book in the book. And so about like a bishops being able, or not being able to get married or have, or whatever, um, that was more like an addition, not really like a revision? Well, that was. I mean, that was that developed into a canonical part of the church in the pretty, pretty much in, th I think, 4th, 3rd, 4th, 5th century that the bishops began to be so of the celibate clergy because the church was of such a size that there's no way that you could have that you needed some oversight of the of the of the number of communities, and the bishops became more that 
besides the great patriarchs, there were other, other bishops. So, so it's just it was a matter of need, and and the can, the canons are just are, are also, you know, their their expression of the church's needs of its order, of what it what it requires, what works, and so, yeah, it's not always you know a penalty and a, or whatever. It's 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 often just this works best for church life. We're gonna do it this way, and and we're gonna and we may codify in in the canons. There may be a canon law that says, and and your ecumenical councils. Um, most of them have canon laws attached to their 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 uh, decisions. That there were canons uh, in in those in the great ecumenical councils as well, including the canon of the dating of Pascha. That sort of canonical decision of 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 the council. I wanted to. Uh, well, you have the chronology of the fathers. You can look those over. Some of the the, the different fathers of different eras in time. Um, the, the 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 column on the right is sort of the monastic, more monastic fathers. Though many of the many of the fathers on the left are monastics as well, but um, just the the way they express themselves and so forth. I think the back of that you already have that article in holy tradition. It's a repetition. But I wanted to. Um, you could do that next week. We'll do it right now. Very quickly. We are coming towards the Christmas season. When we look at the major we we look when we look at the church year in Orthodoxy. The church year. Every year the church has a cycle of services throughout the Canaan. New Year in the Orthodox Church is September 1st. September 1st begins the new church year. It's interesting, too, the Jewish New Year falls in September as well, Rosh Hashanah. So thank you. Christmas comes December 25th. In Orthodoxy, in terms of its magnitude, Pascha comes in the spring, is greater in magnitude, importance, even than Christmas. That's Christmas, that's Pascha. Christmas is, is, is preceded by a 40-day fasting period, Advent or Nativity fast. In the earlier times of the church, there was a, a holy day 12 days after Christmas, um, which was considered as important as Christmas, and that's Theophany. That's January 6th, December 25th. Pascha is preceded by both a pre-Lenten and a, a Lenten period of, of 40 days and then seven days of Holy Week, six days of Holy Week before before Pascha. Then there's a 40-day period after Pascha leading to the Ascension. Our Lord was on this earth for 40 days. And then Pentecost comes after that, 50 days after Pascha. A point I want to make is what I already said, is that Pascha is the big thing. Pascha is the biggie in Orthodox 
mindset. And even when our children grew up in the faith, they they love Christmas. Of course, children all love Christmas, but they, they do love Pascha too. And it becomes very much an excitement, something they look forward to, something that's memorable, something that, that becomes uh, very much a part of their of their spiritual life and and resonates in their imagination and, and their and their spirituality, uh, which is unique to Orthodoxy. We don't, you'll generally not have kids looking forward to Easter in Western society. It's not that big thing, but there's such preparation for it, and the Holy Week is intense. Intense services every day of the week and so forth, even in parish life, that it it it's a it's a very powerful thing. Yes. I kind of thought about it. Pascha almost always comes after tax refunds come back. Hire <laughs> <laughs> a kid in prison for Pascha with their tax refund. Okay. <laughs> Well, in America, but I mean, that's an American Pasca, but, um, yeah. No, I always have to worry about getting my taxes done in Lent, and everything's so busy and crazy, so it's, it's, it's kind of more like, what a pain, but, um, well, it's what a pain for everybody. But, um, so I just wanted to, that's the church year, I mean, there's other holy days throughout, but, um, and you have that list here in front of you. You have it presented both in just a list of dates, and then on, it's, it's pre- on the back side, it's more like the seasons. You can look at the, the different uh, church life by the seasons, and there's your cycle of services we put up on the board last week, Vespers, Compline, Matins, 1st, 3rd, 6th, ninth Hour, Divine Liturgy, and so forth. Questions on that? Well, that's it. Well, thank you very much. We thank always those who bring food and make food. And- contribute towards that.